This is episode 47 of Cinescope, and in time, you will help them accomplish wonders. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Patrick Hicks to talk about one of our favorite films, Man of Steel. Patrick, how are you doing tonight? Man, I'm good. It's going to be exciting to talk about this. It's uh, definitely one I haven't seen in a while, so getting a chance to talk about it and uh, watch it as a result uh, is going to be a lot of fun. So thanks for having me. Thank you for being willing to talk about it, for bringing it up. This has been on my radar for talking about on the show for a long time, because I know I tend to hold a higher opinion than a lot of other people I know of, of this film in particular. And it's worth mentioning that I have not seen the other DC extended universe films at this point. I've seen Man of Steel, and I unfortunately saw Suicide Squad. (laughs) But aside from that, this is the only Superman featuring film I have seen thus far, and I will probably be watching Batman v Superman in the next few days now that we're getting this discussion out of the way, because I wanted to talk about this movie from the perspective of somebody who has only seen this movie to to witness and talk about Superman from the perspective of this film on its own. So I'm really looking forward to that and glad you brought it up to finally talk about on the show. Well, I was glad to do it. Before we get started, would you like to reintroduce yourself and tell us who you are, what you do, your involvement with Feel and Film, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, in the world of the internet, I am a co-host of the Feel and Film podcast where we take a look at film from an emotional standpoint rather than a technical one, really focusing on the things of what the movie does that make us feel, whether it's anger or excitement or despair. Uh, We've kind of run the gamut of different emotions based on the the number of episodes that we've gotten to do over the last year or so. Um, And when I'm not doing that, I'm working 40 hours a week as a multimedia designer. So I keep myself in the creative world. Uh, If not with a podcast, then with the current job that I have doing uh, different kinds of design for e-learning and whatnot. Very cool. Yes, you host the Feel and Film podcast with Aaron White, who talked about Blade Runner with me and One for the Cuckoo's Nest, and most recently, a bonus episode over the newest parts of the Caribbean film. And then you, of course, were on episode 22, I believe, talking about Rocky. So <laughs> it's it's been a little bit, a few months, and I'm glad to finally have you back on the show. Always excited to hear you say, I need you on my show. And so it's good to oblige <laughs> when I can do Yes, I, I sent you a message of a few weeks back saying, hey, Patrick, when are you going to be back on Cinescope? And so here we are. (laughs) Well, very cool. I guess we're ready to go ahead and jump into the movie discussion. Are you ready? I am. Awesome. So we are talking about Man of Steel, which was released just over four years ago on June 14th of 2013. It was directed by Zack Snyder, who also directed Dawn of the Dead, 300, Watchmen, Legend of the Guardians, The Owls of Gahul, Sucker Punch, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, and is set to direct the upcoming Justice League film. This movie was written by David S. Goyer, which is notable because he also wrote the script for Batman Begins, which we just talked about last week. So double dosage of DC superhero origin stories here on Cinescope. (laughs) 
The music was composed by Hans Zimmer, who also composes scores for The Lion King, the first four Pirates of the Caribbean movies, Gladiator, The Last Samurai, The Dark Knight trilogy, Inception, Interstellar, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, with Junkie XL on that one. The movie stars Henry Cavill, Amy Adams, Russell Crowe, Michael Shannon, Kevin Costner, Diane Lane, Lawrence Fishburne, Ancha Trawa, Ailet Zurer, and Christopher Maloney. So, starting off, Patrick, what was your first experience with this movie and sort of leading up to it? Well, I am a self-proclaimed public figure fan of the Big Blue Boy Scout. I have loved the character since the 80s when Christopher Reeve donned the, the red and blue. I grew up with him as my Superman back when the New 52 launched it was my reintroduction into comic books i'd been into comics when i was a younger kid but got reintroduced back in 2011 and so action comics and superman were of course on my list and then when the i guess it was the 75th anniversary of superman was rolling around it kind of coincided with this release of man of steel and we hadn't seen an iteration of superman since the days of Christopher Reeve. And the last installment of that was, well, let's just say it wasn't great. So it left kind of a bad taste in my mouth. The closest I'd gotten to that was Smallville, which was, you know, it was a, it was a good series, uh, had its moments of like, okay, really, are you doing this now kind of thing? But, uh, it never really talked about, it was always about Clark, who is a fantastic character to explore as well. But leading up to this film, I was so excited about this. And I, remember having conversations with Aaron saying, man, I want this to be good. I want this to be good. Especially coming on the heels of Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy, which was critically and commercially a huge success. I was just incredibly hopeful. Um, I hadn't seen a lot of Zack Snyder's work. I was somewhat familiar with it, but this is my first full entry into his directorial waters. And so uh, the first time I'd seen this was actually a midnight feature. It's the last midnight feature I've, I've seen, uh, the most recent. And it was a film that I had a lot of high hopes for. So going into it, my expectations were way up there. And I walked out very tired because I think it was like 2.30 in the morning and I had to work the next day. But it was also, I was, I was excited. And you could say that if you, if you looked at my excitement level over the course of the next several months and over the next year, it went from being like incredibly up there to slowly degrading, degrading, degrading after hearing the reviews and all the complaints concerning, you know, Superman doesn't kill and that fight sequence was too long and all these things. And Zack Snyder needs to take his heavy hand away from a property like this because you're ruining my childhood. And then the rest of the DCEU started happening and I started finding a better appreciation of the film. I took a rewatch of it about a year and a half later, after reading some more positive, what I consider more objective reviews of it, finding it um, equally as enjoyable as the first time I watched it. And then this last iteration for this episode, I just began to realize more why I really enjoyed it the first time. Like the things that I found so attractive in that first viewing, I was reminded of in this most recent one. So getting to actually get to watch it again, influenced by all those factors, has made it one of my favorite films. It's not perfect by any means, 
But I think that there is a lot about Man of Steel that both tells a great story and sets up for the progression of this this character that I've grown to love in a different kind of way. It's interesting hearing that you have such a history with the character because I am just the opposite. <laughs> I talked last week with Batman that I never was much of a superhero fan in general as a kid. I didn't watch the cartoons. I didn't read the comics. I just, for one reason or another, as a child, was not into the idea of superheroes. And beyond that, I was super not a fan of Superman. I guess I, as a kid, I had the perception, and I, I do have this still to a certain extent, I had the perception of Superman just being not interesting because he's all powerful and he only mm -hmm. has one weakness. And so many times you see Superman portrayed in film and in TV and otherwise nowadays, they have to bring in kryptonite in order to give him any sort of arc or any sort of progression. Mm -hmm. He has to overcome the kryptonite. And I had seen Superman Returns back in 05. I thought it was okay. And now I look back at it a little bit more fondly than I did at the time. I don't love it. I don't remember any of the Christopher Reeves films, though I've seen at least one or two of them once or twice. And I have read the original appearance of Superman and the like you mentioned, the New 52 reboot. I read the first edition of that because I took a superhero class in college that required oh, me to read it. Cool. So yeah, I, that was my experience with Superman. And I, all that aside, I was looking forward to this Superman movie in particular because I was hopeful that it would change my mind about the character. Like you said, we were fresh off the Batman trilogy and Christopher Nolan brought such a realism to the character. And I thought okay. if he could bring that to Man of Steel because he was a producer for this film. If he could bring right. that to Superman, the same thing, then it would be worth my time. And so I saw it opening weekend in IMAX with one of my best friends and I liked it at the time. I, I don't remember my exact reaction. I wasn't blown away. I didn't dislike it. it I thought it was good. I, I enjoyed it. It was mostly what I was hoping for. I did have my qualms, still maybe have one or two small qualms, but Every time I've rewatched this film, and I don't know how many times it's been at this point, maybe four or five, if I had to take a guess, I like it more every time I watch it. And I confided with you, Patrick, before we started recording, that watching today, I, I wept several times because this movie made Superman a character that I care about a lot. Right. And it's specifically within this film that I care about him a lot. I don't know what happens in Batman v Superman. I'll be watching that soon. But within Man of Steel... Clark Kent and Superman are characters that I adore and have a great deal of compassion for. So that was sort of my experience going into this movie and coming out of it. Well, you make a great point and what you said earlier about how Superman really, you didn't say it this way, but I think I interpreted it this way. So if I didn't interpret it correctly, uh, please correct me, that he seems kind of unapproachable in that he's got this sort of, I mean, he's a god. He essentially is this godlike character, unlike a Batman or, you know, a Robin or even some of the MCU characters where, you know, they're normal people that get power thrust upon them. And so there's a really difficult approachability that that this character has. And the fact that, yeah, he does have one weakness, and that is kryptonite. So the stories that are told, I feel like the best ones that are told are done in what I call long form storytelling in some of your more series style things like i would love to see a television show not necessarily smallville but a television show that explores the adventures of superman 
his stories are also given the ability to be somewhat, they can be somewhat campy. Uh, Superman 3 is one of those things. People will argue with me, uh, Aaron, particularly about how it's not a great film. And from the perspective of respecting a character like Superman, as far as like what Snyder does and what Richard Donner does with the first two, it's true. It's definitely a deviation, but it fits with the spirit of the character. But we're not here to talk about Superman 3. I think Man of Steel helps to capture what I think is difficult to capture about the character. And that is finding a reason to care about him, like you said, that goes beyond, oh, don't hurt him with kryptonite. We see battles in this film that I think are underappreciated because they're not man versus man battles. They're, I mean, they're epic, like intergalactic battles to an extent because you're fighting aliens. But at the same time, there's this touch of humanity that I think Zack Snyder does a great job helping to capture in the charisma of Cavill and the relationship with his his parents, his both his dads and his mom. Of course, his relationship with Zod as well. So I think that when you look at it that way, when you look at it as an attempt to not reinvent the character, but to tell his story for a new audience, I think that was definitely a helping point for me as I continued to reinvest time in the film. And it's why I've enjoyed it as much as I have this time around. What Snyder has done and what Goyer has done is he has taken Superman, who is this very difficult to relate with character because of his powers and because of his few weaknesses, and given him a very human struggle, which is, what is my place in this world? And that's where I hook on with Superman in this film. And so before we dive too deep into that, let's just start talking about basic story stuff. So from the very start of the film, we're thrust into the the world of Krypton, which is fantastic in its terms of mm-hmm. visuals and in world building, the technology that's presented, the life. It's a beautiful place, but you can also see the the tragedy of it. You can see the chaos in it and why Jor-El and his wife are so desperate to send off their son in order to save the Kryptonian race. This is their only chance. You you see how magnificent it is, but then you see it's like the rise and fall of Rome. Everything that that reaches its peak has to come down at some point and they've reached their peak and they're falling apart quickly. So watching the opening of the film with Hans Zimmer, drums a-blazing, lots of fun, and we get this great emotional entry into the universe and the story they're trying to tell by by seeing how much Jor-El and his wife care about their people and their son, and they, they use that care to send him off to to both protect him and to protect the future of their race. I think that's a, a, a great way to start the film. Oh, I think so too. When I saw that opening scene, it felt bold to me. It didn't feel meek. It didn't feel like, okay, we're just going to gradually get you into Superman. No, we're talking about, you. we're in the thick of it. I mean, Krypton is is dying. And there are just like explosions and there's just this drama that you're just thrust into. It got me excited about potentially, I don't know if I was thinking about this the opening night when I saw this, but I remember thinking at least later on, man, it'd be cool to explore Krypton before it exploded. And of course, now there's a TV series that I think is being produced on sci-fi that Goyer is, I think, helping to to pin about the days of Krypton. So that excites me. I, I think that I have a lot of respect for, and I don't know if there's source material that 
was used for this, but I have a lot of respect for creative sci-fi ideas. I really enjoyed the idea of the Genesis Chamber and the idea that for whatever reason, Kryptonians started being bred for specific purposes. That for some reason, reproduction was now managed. It wasn't something that was free. And so it gave a lot more weight to Kal-El being born. You know, in other origin stories, we're like, oh, he's the last son of Krypton. So he's going to go represent Krypton. Well, we have this added element of now he holds the human race literally in his body and that he is a unique individual who is not born for a specific purpose, that he has his own way that he can be, that he can choose to be good or bad, powerful or or not, secret or out there. And having that set the way it is gives weight to the rest of the film because those ideas then get echoed in the relationships that we see with him and other people, with Zod, particularly his relationship with Zod, how, how much that matters. That it's not just evil General Zod trying to take over the world, although that's part of it, <laughs> but it's also got other stuff going on in it, and we'll get into that later. But I thought that the way it opened, not only from a dramatic sense, but also with so much substance as far as why stuff was happening, uh, got me into the film. And I think it was different enough for me that it kind of made me think, okay, I'm, I'm in for something that's not what I'm used to. Am I going to be okay with this? <laughs> and I walked away feeling feeling better about it than I thought I would. It gives us more of a glimpse into Krypton than I think we've ever really gotten before. And it gives us a glimpse into the mindsets of Jor-El and Lara as they are making this monumental decision to send their son off the moment he's born. And you get a glimpse into Zod and why he is the way he is and why he thinks the way he thinks. Because he was created for a purpose and that's all he's ever known. Again, like I talked about last week with Liam Neeson's character as Ra's al Ghul, we have a villain here who's not motivated by taking over the world syndrome, by being just evil. He is doing what he was created to do. His purpose is right. just corrupted. And that is always fascinating when it comes to villains. So this beginning scene in Krypton gives us so much more than we've ever gotten in Superman films, to my knowledge, in just establishing everything that is happening and the circumstances and the why of it all. I love it all. The The rest of the film, especially the next half or so, is told very much like Batman Begins. Again, it goes back to Goyer writing the screenplays for both, where we get, we're sort of just dropped into adult Clark's life as he's on this journey to discover who he is and what he needs to do with his life. And mixing that with these defining flashbacks of his childhood and these, these, pinpoints in his life where he can look back and say that moment is why I am who I am and I have this memory of my father and he taught me this in that moment and I would say that the non-linear storytelling here is told even better than in Batman Begins uh, as far as the flashbacks revealing character and I, I, I love when a screenwriter can take something so unique you could argue it's not unique because he did it with Batman Begins but it's it's unique it, it not a lot of people do this and have it work so well, and it works fantastically here. I, I agree. And when you when you do that nonlinear storytelling, it's interesting because I've seen this done in TV shows where they, I guess I call it the, um, oh, what is it? What did I call it? The uh, anyway, it's it's where you tell the ending and then you go back and you 
you basically put the pieces together of why you get to that place. Uh, Quentin Tarantino does this all the time. Yeah, I call it the Tarantino effect because he does it all the time with a lot of his, his movies. I think where, where Nolan does it in Memento to give you the sense of just displacement and just kind of discomfort, I think what Goyer does is he does that in a more subtle way. Like, I don't think he's trying to make us feel uncomfortable, but I think he's trying to make us feel incomplete. So by putting us in the thick of where Clark is, either on the oil rig or, you know, as a waiter somewhere, we, what we know about him is that he's just hiding out, that he is definitely not who he's meant to be at this point because we all know who he's going to become. But then we take him back to these places where he still struggles with that, even at an early age, where he's, even as a child, he is constantly battling his powers and who he is as a powerful person or a powerful entity versus who he is as a boy. And so what we get from that, that I think is incredibly powerful, is that that struggle is life lifelong. And I think it's one that even as his powers manifest, even as he puts the suit on, he still is uncomfortable in his skin like i i don't i don't know that we we may get some of that near the end of the film but i don't think we get a completion of that of who he is completely um, which i think is interesting because in most iterations of superman origin stories we get a oh here's the suit now i'm powerful and i know exactly what i'm doing i mean there's a great moment when i don't call it a funny scene but it's it's one of the more <laughs> what i call ironically grounded scenes because it takes place in the air but it's when he's jumping after he gets the suit and he's he's awkward and all this stuff and you see him smile because that's what because that's what we would do if we had these powers that we knew we could we could do but he was still clunky in it and there was another scene right after that where his it was used in the trailer where his fist comes down and the you know the snow separates and then he just shoots up you know with that sonic boom those things are i think put together to show something, to show I'm awkward and now I'm confident. And I think as a whole, what we get is this, because of those flashbacks, we get a sense that, that Kal-El, has, Kal-El has been like this his entire life and he will always struggle with that. And I think that's what Man of Steel has the power to do is tell that story of a man struggling to be who he's meant to be and what that is, you know, because it's not defined for him. I'm glad you mentioned that scene because that was a scene I had written down as probably my favorite Superman moment of all time in anything I've ever seen, (laughs) because that is the moment he decides to be Superman. He's just talked with his birth father via his consciousness on the ship and has gotten the suit for the first time. And this is the moment when he is given the choice. Do I become sort of who I'm meant to become or do I just continue living this lifestyle hidden from the world doing small good tasks throughout my lifetime but never really coming out into the open and in donning the suit and testing his abilities by taking flight in that moment he accepts this is who i am and it's just such a satisfying scene that the crescendo of the music with him launching himself with the sonic boom and just exploring the world in, in that moment, you see him go through the desert and then go out into outer space even. It's just such a fantastic Superman moment where he has decided this is who I am and this is who I want to be and let's go. And it feels earned. It feels like it, it comes from a place where he has struggled and now he's choosing. 
as opposed to saying, I've got this suit and now I'm the man. It's a human quality. I mean, it's a very earth quality to choose to be something and to fully embrace it. And I think that's one of the huge themes of the film is not only finding your purpose, but having the right time to do that. And that moment, I think, was just incredibly visually and musically powerful because it because em- it emphasized all those things at once. Is there anything else in the story or filmmaking side of things that you want to talk about before we dive into character a little bit deeper? I think that at the heart of this film, it's it's a father son story, and I think that's you know I don't I don't think that that's very much a hidden thing. I love the themes of adoption and purpose and. Uh, this time around, I really focused on this sense of timing. There was um, there was one particular scene that grips me probably every time, and it's this it's the tornado scene where Jonathan Kent, who I, I'm just gonna you know we we just dropped an episode on Field of Dreams, and Kevin Costner is always gonna be the <laughs> the the corn cornfield farmer good old boy guy for me. He's always going to be that. And when you, when you attach a father-son relationship to him, I just lose it anyway. So uh, I'm sure this had influence. But when I watch this scene and I see how Jonathan Kent holds his arm out, telling Clark no. Leading up to that, there were a couple other scenes where he's talking to, to him after he saved Pete and those guys on the bus. And he says, what was I supposed to do? Let them die. And he just, he, you just, you just see Jonathan Kent struggling. He goes, maybe. And what we get is this, this really uh, interesting sense of it's not the right time. It's not the right time. And then that moment when Jonathan sacrifices himself, he says, don't come after me. He doesn't say it. The great thing about that scene is that the sound goes silent and all you hear is Zimmer's piano where he's holding his arm out and, and then he gets swept away and that facial expression, that scream that Clark makes is reminiscent of the same expression he makes when he kills Zod. Even in that moment, when his dad, when he sees his father get killed, it wasn't his time. I mean, imagine that, man. Imagine being the son of someone and knowing you can save him, but trusting him, because he says that to Lois afterwards. He says, I, I trusted him. Having to trust him enough to say, it's not my time yet. And I think that those moments right there really helped illuminate that, that theme of timing for me because when he eventually does put on the suit, takes off and does his thing, everything really resonates from that kind of theme. And I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, that was one of the many scenes that got to me this viewing in particular. Well, let's let's just dive into characters a little bit deeper while we're at it. So first on my list is Clark. You know, this isn't a movie about Superman. It's about a man learning who he wants to be, how he fits in, and about him becoming Superman. And at the end, that's who he is. And I I love that it's about this journey of a character. It's not about this guy who automatically knows what he's doing, knows who he wants to be, knows, knows how he fits into the world. He's figuring that out. And it's not until the end that he he reaches that ideal. He's unsure of himself, needs guidance, and he gets that from both of his fathers, like you were talking about, and his mother. You have Jonathan telling him to wait until the time is right and that he was sent to Earth for a reason. You've got Jor-El telling him that he was sent as a beacon of hope and to be an example of goodness for the people of Earth. 
And then you've got his mother helping him to sort of hone his powers to a certain extent, teaching him to to focus and to isolate things so that he's not overwhelmed by his senses. And so you have this support group for him that is helping him to figure life out as he goes. And all this time, the only thing he is sure of is that he wants to help people, whether that is his bullies. You mentioned he saves the bus. Two minutes before the bus goes off the side of the bridge, this kid is picking on him and calling him awful names. And yet he dives back into the lake after the bus has been rescued because he realizes, hey, this kid is still down there by himself. I need to go back and get him because he's a human life and worth being saved. So no matter what, no matter who the person is, Clark is about doing the right thing and helping people. And, you know, in his adulthood, he goes out in search of answers, helping others along the way. This is a passionate Superman. This is a a person who cares about his parents, who cares about doing good and about stopping Zod by the end of the film. And I'll go ahead and address this now. Superman is known as a character, both Superman and Batman, characters who don't kill that is sort of their their thing in the superhero world. Yet in this film, Superman kills Zod. And I know that's gotten a lot of backlash from a lot of people, but I've never understood the backlash because for me in that moment, that seems like the reasonable outcome of an absolutely impossible situation. And it is agonizing to him. You see how despaired he is that he had to kill somebody not only because it's the act of killing and something he's never done before but imagine what if zod had not gone off the deep end this was somebody who shared his race this was somebody who could be a family to him on earth and because of zod's actions because of what situation zod put clark into he had to kill zod and you see him let out that huge scream of emotion it's upsetting and I think it's reasonable to assume that the reason he doesn't kill in the future, again, I haven't seen Batman v Superman. I don't know what happens there, but maybe the reason he decides in the future not to kill is because he had this agonizing experience the first time he did kill. And he thinks to himself, man, I don't want to do that again. I'm glad you brought up the idea of two distinct characters. You didn't do it intentionally, maybe, but you're talking about Clark and Superman and even Kal-El to an extent, because Kal-El is the you know, he's the synthesis of those two characters. In a lot of past iterations through comics or through, um, you know, Smallville or other iterations of storytelling, I've really been impressed and very uh, appreciative of the fact that Clark gets as much screen time as Superman because Clark represents the human side. And there was a, a comic series, uh, a short, uh, like a six issue series by a guy named Max Landis who uh, who wrote a it was a six issue series called Superman American Alien It'd be one that I'd highly recommend, but each issue deals with a certain point in Clark's life, and it talks about the life of Clark Kent. So as a kid, as a as an adolescent, you know, teenager, as a man in his twenties, um, and it's it's one that's not necessarily connected to a particular timeline or anything. It's just a an independent six-issue story, and what it does is it opens up an image of Clark Kent as a human being, as someone who has completely embraced his human roots. One of the cool sci-fi things that I thought was fantastic in this movie was how when Clark was taken aboard 
Zod's ship, he actually responded negatively to the atmosphere because it replicated Kryptonian atmosphere. And Zod specifically says something like, he's rejecting the Kryptonian atmosphere because he's lived on Earth this long. And I think that's very metaphoric of the fact that he is an Earthling. You know, he's not, but he's, he's Kryptonian, but he has acclimated himself, not just scientifically or biologically, but also socially, emotionally. He's invested in these people. And you mentioned that even at an early age, he was compelled to help people, despite the fact that he was being beaten up, yelled at, given, you know, slammed with these just foul names. He's compelled to. And I don't know that it's ever made clear if that's something that he is born with or something that he is taught, but I think it's a little bit of both. Because what we see is the life of Clark Kent is a life of choices. And yes, he's still holding back who he is as Superman, but he is also making choices and those choices could either leave him lead him to I mean, he could have easily said, I'm not gonna say Pete. You know, I could save everybody else, but Pete was giving me a hard time, so I'm not I'm gonna let him drown. He could have easily just beaten those guys up later on in one of the flashbacks where they were just picking on him and Pete and and his dad were in the background, you know, came to kind of rescue him. In any of those cases, he could have chosen not to do what he did. We just, I think, take it for granted because we know, well, he's Superman. Of course he's going to do that. Well, no, we don't. Because when he's going through those early stages, he's not Superman. He's Clark Kent with a bunch of cool powers, and he's trying to figure out who he is. And so I think when he kills Zod, I think it was an issue for a lot of people. I'm not going to speak for everyone, but I think from my perspective, I think it was an issue because we know who Superman really is, and we know that he wouldn't do that. But that's not the story Snyder was telling. Snyder was telling a story of a character who, for his whole life, struggled with who he was, and he knew that he'd have to sacrifice one thing or another. I think that those two scenes, the tornado scene and the scene with Zod, I saw them visually identical because he knew he was giving up something. He had to trust what he was being asked to do in both those instances, and they cost him something. One cost him the life of his earthly father. The other one cost him the life of a Kryptonian race. Zod was the last of that. So now he truly is the last son of Krypton. So I think for him, killing it wasn't like, I mean, he was something definitely he had to do, but it was something that he, I think, would continue to hold regret for if he didn't. Zod had to be put down, which leads into that whole, if Zod had not been put down, Metropolis wouldn't be the only city that was pummeled. I mean, you talked about the whole world. And I think that's something that Zack Snyder is not given a lot of credit for is there were stakes. There were big st- I mean, there was, was catastrophic. And um, maybe it was overdone. In some ways, you know, I can agree with that statement. But at the same time, I see what Snyder was doing was he was trying to say, this is the, this is the power. It's not just confined to a city. It's not just confined to a building. I mean, this man, Zod, has the power to do something that nobody else has the power to do and he has to be stopped and in that moment when superman is holding zod around the neck and restraining him within that building and zod activates his eye lasers and is slowly getting closer and closer and closer to this family cowering in the corner not able to do anything to save themselves superman is asking please please stop this please i don't want this outcome but that's the outcome that Zod gives him. And that's why I think it's okay in that moment. 
yes, he probably regrets it. Yes, it's not something he wants to do. But yes, he realizes that if I'm going to be a savior for this planet, this is the choice I have to make right now. And I think that's a it, it, it's heavy and it's done on purpose and it gives a lot to that character. Let's go on to Lois, because what's different about Lois, well, first off, she knows who Superman is. Wow, surprise, surprise. <laughs> he's not fooling anybody, or he's fooling everybody except for her with glasses by the end of the film. <laughs> you know, I, I like that she knows Superman's identity in this film. It gives him a confidant, and it gives her more to do than just being a clueless romantic interest, than she, like she has been in previous films. She's an agent of her own fate. She investigates, she acts, she listens and protects, and yes, she's a romantic interest too, but that's not who she is in this movie, like in so many other iterations of Superman. So it's great that Amy Adams gets to take the character and really make it her own in this film. She's not my favorite Lois, but that's not to her discredit, because I think as an actress, Amy Adams brings a strength to the character of Lois that's very independent, very much self-aware, very self-confident. And I think what her character her character does is similar to what the character of Lois Lane does on the uh, series of Smallville. She's not Clark's equal, but she can stand toe-to-toe with him. Like, she has the ability to stand up to him if she needs to. In some ways, she reminds me a lot of Adrian to Rocky in that she has the ability to tell him, most powerful man on earth, what he needs to do. Like she is a, an incredible counterpart to him. I think in a lot of ways she she fills those gaps, <laughs> if you will. And because she's a reporter, because she is so investigative and inquisitive, it doesn't surprise me that Snyder decides to reveal his identity to her early on. You'd think that that would be something that would be a detriment, but I think it's actually a great thing because then she becomes a great partner for him. Uh, there were certain parts I think that didn't quite resonate. I think like they should have with him and her, but I think that from a an acting standpoint, I think Cavill and Adams have fantastic chemistry together. I think they make a great pair as Clark and, and Lois, and she just she brings a different kind of strength to their relationship here in this film. Being a friend, being a confidant, someone that that he can trust. I think that's another big theme here is how to be able to trust. You know, he talks to her before he talks to anybody else. And um, I love the fact that she drops the story or attempts to drop the story once she basically discovers who he is and hears his story. Because <laughs> she's like, nope, you know, this is bigger than than a scoop. And so I think that shows a lot of her humanity and her ability to care more about life than just what the next good big scoop is. But uh, Amy Adams is a fantastic choice for Lois for me. Yeah. And in investigating Superman and finding whose true identity is, like I said, it gives her more to do than to just stand and be clueless on the side. She, She figured it out. Great for Lois. She's finally a Lois who figures it out. And like you said, she exhibits restraint in not telling the whole world who this is and in so doing forms a relationship and then gets caught up in the thick of everything. So she's able to be there for all the big moments of the film, believably. And we see that she's smart and she can come up with ideas and she can fend for herself to a certain extent. And in the end, still be the person there comforting Clark as he is mourning 
the loss of Zod and what he was forced to do. So I love Lois in this film. Now, Jonathan, uh, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack with Jonathan because, <laughs> you know, he's he's the dad that Clark needs on Earth. Both Jor-El and Jonathan are fantastic fathers in their own right. I'll say this. Jonathan isn't someone who wants a bunch of kids to die. That's not what that scene is about. You talked about this earlier. He wants Clark to reveal himself to the world at the time that the world is ready. But I think what's important about that scene beyond just a time when the world is ready is a time when Clark is ready. Right. Clark, at that point in time, right before the tornado hits, they're sitting arguing in the car about what Clark's going to do with his life, whether he's going to work on the farm. And Clark says, no, I want to help people. And Jonathan says, oh, feeding people with food that you grow yourself isn't helping people. And so they're having this fight about what Clark wants to do with his life. And he's saying, I want to go out and I want to do good. But he's still a kid. He He's not ready to expose himself to the world yet. And Jonathan understands that. He sees that he's still a kid. He can't. He's not ready for this. Maybe the world at that point was ready. Maybe that world would have accepted him. But Clark was not ready. And that's what that scene is about. He believes that Clark's greater purpose is as an agent of good, but he knows that Clark needs to wait until the time is right for him. And that's what th those two scenes, both the, the bus scene when Clark is truly a kid and then the tornado scene when Clark is closer to being ready, but he's still not quite there. Uh, that That's what those scenes are about to me is they weren't pointless sacrifices. He didn't want the kids to die. He didn't. I'm sure he did. He didn't want to die. But he knew it was right to to give Clark the time that was necessary to figure out himself. Jonathan's interesting because at no point when we see him does he say, this is the time when you're meant to be who you are. And I think what we glean from that is that Jonathan doesn't even know. I think that he's just trying to be the best dad he can be. And that sounds real cheesy to say, but I mean, imagine this. I mean, you are the dad, the earthly dad of an alien right <laughs> who's trying to be in school and be a normal human being i mean I, I don't know what that's like i have a normal as far as i know he's a normal four-year-old he you know he does four-year-old things so here's jonathan kent who is trying to do the best he knows how as a dad to do not only the fatherly stuff, earthly fatherly stuff but also to recognize that his son is not of this world and there's a there's a fantastic moment that I think every time Kevin Costner just breaks his voice when he starts kind of tearing up, it makes me tear up. I think that's just a trigger for me. But it's just after that, that the bus rescue, Clark's sitting on the truck or the, the tailgate and it's after that big conversation about maybe and he says something about um Can I just keep pretending to be your son? That's the line. And then Jonathan says, You are my son. And the way he says that is the way, I mean, if that doesn't speak to like the power of adoption, I don't know what does. But the thing I love about Jonathan Kent is that he never denies who Clark is. He never denies his alienship. He never denies, he sits in this really interesting middle ground where he said, he doesn't say, go and be who you're meant to be, Clark. No, he never says that. He says, you are going to be something incredible, whatever it is. The world's going to know who you are, good or bad. But he also doesn't try to pretend that Clark's just a human being because he's not. And I think that's an amazing trait to have as a dad 
to be able to live in these two worlds and to, to balance those things in a way that is, I don't even know what the word is, but just it's phenomenal to me. You see how he balances that. You only, gosh, I wish I could see more Jonathan Kent because in the history of Superman, he is a powerful ally to Clark. Like he is the rock for who Clark is as he's growing up. And I think what Snyder does is in each one of those scenes, he gives Jonathan Kent weight. First of all, there's never a scene when Jonathan Kent ever says, I'm disappointed in you. There's never ever a scene when Jonathan says, I wish you wouldn't have done that. It's always a sense of sitting by his son and saying, I'm trying to understand and I may not get all this, but I love you. I mean, gosh, that's what a dad should do. I mean, a dad, yes, is there to discipline. A dad is there to try to correct. But at the end of the day, a dad is there to say, no matter what you do, you're always going to be my son and I'm always going to love you. And I think we get that from those scenes without him being overtly verbal in saying that. And casting Costner to do this, I think, is just, he's my Jonathan Kent. If I could pick a Jonathan Kent, he's now who I picture when I think of Jonathan Kent. Not only from this film, but I could also just see him as I read the comics, because he just epitomizes that really interesting balance of being the father of, a, of an adolescent son that's growing up, and also the, the earthly father of a, a universal alien, or whatever you want to call Clark. And him, along with Martha, who, her in particular, I love the pretend my voice is an island scene, where she's comforting this young Clark who's being overwhelmed by his senses. He's he's experiencing x-ray vision and hearing all the sounds of the world all at once, and he's overwhelmed by it. And she says, pretend my voice is an island, find me, and swim to it. Together, these are parents who are who love their kid, whether he is truly their kid or not does not matter again it's about adoption this is a foreign infant from who knows where but they love him as their own and they raise him and they teach him of good and of the values of hard work and those stick with clark throughout the rest of his life as we clearly see in these flashbacks where he's going back to these moments where he's thinking about lessons his father's taught him and times his father encouraged him when it wasn't yet time to reveal himself but he knew that time was coming soon and one day you're going to be great and you are going to teach these people what being good is all about so together they're just a fantastic parenting duo and i agree going on to his other father his other parent that we see a lot of is jor-el who even at birth he envisions Kal-El as a beacon of hope for Krypton and for the people of Earth. He says, I have seen hope. I have held it in my hands. And the council that he's talking to at the moment doesn't know that, but he's talking literally about his infant son who he has held in his hands. And this is the future of our world that I've held. And he understands that the survival of the Kryptonians is up to Clark, but he doesn't have the same drive that Zod has, where Zod wants to continue the race by eliminating all other life on the planet and Jor-El trusts Kal-El to make the correct decision whenever whatever the decision is when the time is right and that is to to be a bridge to to do what is good he says i believe in the potential in every person to be a force for good and that is what him sending Kal-El to earth is about and like Jonathan and Martha he believes in he, he trusts Kel-El to make the right choice. What do you have to say about Jor-El? I think from the very beginning, we see the power of Jor-El. 
Like I think what Russell Crowe brings, when you contrast him as an actor with Kevin Costner, we get such a dynamic of two fathers. We get the almost like a royal ominous presence with Jarrell from that British accent and his deep, you know, resonating tones or whatever. Contrasted with Jonathan Kent, who's just this farm guy who is just down to earth or whatever. And I think that was intentional. And I think having Russell Crowe in the role of Jarrell brings a sense of power. And that power exists in his son because that's his offspring. And so it's not that it's not just that Superman has these powers that makes him powerful. It's that he possesses the genes of Jarrell and Laura. And so when you look at Jarrell and you see how deeply he cares about his son and how equally deeply he cares about the race of people that he calls Kryptonians and how those two have meshed, there's a conversation that he and Laura have where he, where she says, we're not going to see him walk. We're not going to hear him say our names. And that's genuinely, I think, what a mom would say. She sees the baby. She sees the child. Whereas Jarrell says, he is our future. He is the future of our race. He is the hope. And I wonder sometimes, because we never see him cry, I wonder if he has emotional, I would think he does, but I, it's hard for me to see if he has any kind of emotional regret when Clark leaves, you know, when this baby takes off. I think it's maybe emphasized when Zod is talking to to his hologram and he says, you have all of his memories, you have all of his, all this, but I wonder if he can feel his pain. And he describes how he's going to kill Superman and extract the codex from his dying bones. But not once do we ever see Jarrell cry. We don't see any kind of emotion on his face besides just sternness. And I think that's intentional because that's who Clark needs. He needs that sternness. He needs that 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 pillar of I need to be this. But I think he's complete when he finds that with Jonathan because Jonathan gives him the sense of emotion and human connection. And so there's this really great dichotomy of those two characters and how we see them, you know, sort of up against each other. It's neat seeing how those two play into Clark's life and how he how he takes the best from both. But Jarrell specifically, the power that comes from him, just as he just who he is, he just emits this sense of real like I don't want to mess with I don't want to mess with this guy because he's he's gonna do something. <laughs> I mean, we never see tears from him, but there is a scene when he first interacts with Cal El when he it's basically the Fortress of Solitude at this point. He's flown it up north and it's by itself. And they come face to face for the first time as father's son with Clark or Cal L as an adult. And there, there aren't tears in that scene, but it's very clear that he is proud of the man that Cal L has grown to be. And he says, you are ready. Here is a suit. The S or the symbol on the chest stands for hope. And that's who you are to these people. You are going to show them you're going to be an ideal for them to strive towards. And I am proud that you have grown to be that symbol embodied. And I, I love that scene. And just a, a, a tidbit, I, I do love the scene later when he is on Zod ship after Lois has put in the key and has installed Jor-El into Zod ship. <laughs> and uh, there's this, it's, it's pretty funny actually sequence where he is guiding her out 
to the escape pods. And he, as soon as she turns a corner, he's in a new place, swinging to a different door, opening a door. <laughs> it's just a, it's, it's not funny, but it, it does have a, a bit of humor to it as you watch him uh, just appearing every time she turned the corner and he, he makes this funny hand motion whenever he opens a door. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a cool way to, for the, con, for the character to continue on despite his death at the beginning of the film. And it's, it's a great way for him to interact and still essentially be himself and express that pride for his son and who he has grown to be. Now, last on my list, at least, is Zod. Um, so what I talked about earlier, he's a great villain because he's not a person who's just evil. He's doing what he thinks, what he believes to be right as per his purpose that he was born to do. He was created to protect Krypton and everything he does, no matter how violent or cruel, is to protect his people. And now his people are gone. And so what do you do when your purpose is erased? You go crazy like Zod does. <laughs> I'm not trying to justify Zod, but in his mind, he is justified to do these acts because he feels like it is what he was created to do. And when his purpose is gone, that's all he has. And he has to take it out on the person who has removed his purpose from his life. Just like Cal L, just like Superman, you see his passion for what he is doing with his life, and you see the the devastation he has at his loss. And so, in that way, he's an empathetic character. You 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 see and understand why he is so upset in this moment, but that doesn't justify his actions. And another sort of justification, I suppose, for Superman's killing him is you see the the destruction that this man is capable of. You see buildings crumbling when the terraforming generators are set up you see the damage it is doing to the world in in those points on the globe and there's just there's no other way this man has to go and it, it's just an example of zod's power and his passion that leads to superman having to make this choice to end his life zod's an interesting character and i can appreciate any storyteller who allows me to feel sympathy for a villain. And you're right. Killing isn't the repercussions of his actions are not justified. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's why I find the killing of Zod so intriguing in light of the reaction to it. Because folks that don't like that go back to the general rule that Superman doesn't kill. Like there's this inherent moral clause in his superhero contract that says nope he doesn't do that but you could say the same thing if you applied that same logic to zod who was born and bred to be a protector of krypton and as he puts it would do anything to make sure that protection stays intact no matter if it means killing people so his purpose is clearly defined so it brings up a really interesting question is is Zod justified in the way in which he reacts? Because he ends up telling Superman, you have basically taken my soul. You've taken away everything from me. And I love that visual of him holding out the dust and just seeing it crumble from his hand and having him say that because he is completely at a loss. I mean, you could tell that those lines right there give weight to everything that he's done so far. Because if you look at, if you look at this movie through his lens, he just wants to save Krypton. He and Jarrell both, I think, in their minds, one had, they had that same goal. 
save Krypton, save Krypton, save Krypton. The thing is, from Zod's perspective, he could only save Krypton from his own purposed role. He wasn't a scientist. He wasn't a politician. He was a soldier. So what do you do as a soldier? Well, you take out anything and everything that's going to get in the way of saving the thing that you're trying to preserve. And so I make this argument to make it sound like, well, more power to him. Kill the human race. No, because I'm a human being. You don't take my planet from me, okay? But at the same time, I have this incredible amount of sympathy for Zod and the way in which he just completely gets angry. It's not a villain trying to take over the world angry. It's a villain trying to preserve and trying to fulfill his purpose in life. We could say the same thing about Clark Kent. He's trying to find out what his purpose is and fulfill it. That conversation with Jonathan in the truck just before the tornado hit, he was saying, I don't want to do that. I want to help people. You know what I mean? I want to be what I'm supposed to be. Those two characters in some ways are parallel, although their actions and the way in which they've gotten to those places are, are entirely different from one another. Honestly, I think you can make, I think there are some arguments that are made. Well, you could have just put Zod in the Phantom Zone or you could have put him in jail. I'm like, no, you couldn't have. <laughs> First of all, you didn't have Kryptonian technology or Kryptonite around to, to weaken these guys. They don't know about that yet. So what, what could you do? But at the same time, Zot's fate was sealed when he was born. He was always going to be a soldier. So in some ways, you, you bring out that sense of, is he the product of nature or nurture? Well, I think it's more, it's both, but I think it's more of the, of the former. If you're born to do this and you do it at all, you, know, you go at all costs to make sure it's done. To me, I think there is some justification in that. Now, I don't like the, the way in which it happens, but I can't disagree with his line of thinking. <laughs> So I think I think Zod as a character is is really interesting. I, I wish he weren't killed, because I'd like to have seen more of him. And I think that again that lends itself to more long form storytelling, like a TV series. But Michael Shannon just owns that role. I think he's fantastic in it. And as far as Zod goes, that's probably the most interesting take on on that character that I've seen. And it gives Superman a foe worth fighting. And the moment when he basically proves that he is from the military and it has training to to master his body when he is all of a sudden flying and he's all of a sudden shooting lasers out of his eyes uh and he picks it up so quickly because he is this character who has been trained to control his body and he picks it up so quickly in comparison to clark who didn't have that kind of training and it's just one of those oh snap moments in the movie where all of a sudden he rises off the, the the top of the roof and is suddenly flying and then the whole rest of the battle is fought in the air. So it, it's nice to have Superman on the same level as the villain without having to bring him down due to kryptonite. So right. I'll have more to say about Zod in just a minute when we get to relevance. But for now, do you have any other characters? No, I think we've hit them all. Cool. So let's go on to music. And... uh it's in this section that I'll probably make my most controversial statement of the night. And that will be that, well, first off, I'll, I'll say that it's perhaps my favorite Hans Zimmer score, at least top three, but that's not the controversial part. Okay. This is the controversial part. As well as I think John Williams' Superman theme represents Superman or announces Superman, I love that theme. I think it's great. I think John Williams is, John Williams is my favorite composer. That's out of the way. I like Zimmer's Superman theme more. And uh, there it is. Mic drop. Boom goes the dynamite. 
Like I said, I think William's Superman theme announces him well. I think it it represents Superman well. But when I hear Zimmer's theme, it is Superman to me. And this is how I'll explain it. So you need to go pull up the soundtrack. Uh, not not you right now, but go pull up the soundtrack. <laughs> I've got a link in the show notes to the the deluxe edition on iTunes. It's fantastic. Go buy it. And go to the track, Look to the Stars. And right after the one-minute mark, we, we get a glimpse into the Superman theme. This is at the beginning of the film. And in this track, we hear we hear Zimmer playing with the expectation and resolution of music. So you have this do so, do fa, do so, do la, do ti. And then what do you expect next? Do, do, because ti leads up to do. And we get that. But under that, he adds this sort of non-resolution. He adds in this this drone under the, the music so it doesn't fully resolve. And why? Because he's not Superman yet. This is music that is telling a story as much as the film itself is. It's telling about this character who is trying to find his place in the world. And as he's doing that and this music is developing, he's not there yet. When do we get that? At the very end of the film, in the end credits, when he is Superman, in the track, what are you going to do when you're not saving the world? It resolves because he's Superman now. And so I listen to this music and Zimmer is playing with expectation. He's doing new things. He's doing cool things. He's playing with our expectation. He doesn't resolve it quite yet. But when he's Superman, that's the moment he resolves it. And that's when we have our full Superman theme. And it's big. It's glorious. And it is fantastic. I love this score so much. I really can't follow that up with anything of that. So I'm, <laughs> no, <laughs> honestly, you, you've hit the nail on the head. I'm going to agree with you in saying that if this is the Superman from my generation, if this is the Superman that I'm going to attach myself to, then Hans Zimmer's score, his theme, is going to be the theme that I attach myself to. I think what Zimmer does as a whole, by not dipping back into the John Williams well, is he establishes difference. He establishes what I think Snyder is doing as a director and saying, this is a different Superman than what has been told before. And that may have been what turned people off because expectations were the Brandon Routh times 10 or Christopher Reeve times 100 or whatever. And what we got was something, we got muted color palettes. Uh, We got heavy and somber music. And we got uh, a, the darker, co- you know, darker costume, and we got steel—no pun intended. Uh, we got just industrial, and we got destruction. We got all these things that really are the arguments against the DCEU. It's too dark. It's too destructive. It's too—it's not funny enough. And I think what Zimmer does here is exactly what you're saying: is that theme epitomizes the evolution of Clark Kent. That theme brings about expectation and change over time. It's supposed to be slow. When we hear John Williams' theme, we hear hope from the very beginning. Uh, Even at its slowest piece, you know, when he slows it down, it's still like, yes, because you hear that dun-da-da. You know, there's always that kind of, here I am, I'm, I'm here. But Zimmer says, no, this is a slow burn origin story. This is going to take a while. He's going to have to grow. He's going to have to hurt. He's going to have to feel pain. And my music is going to accent that story. Hans Zimmer is probably one of my favorite composers, if not my favorite, because of the emotional 
weight that he puts on his films. The Lion King was my first soundtrack I remember being very clearly like connected to from an instrumental point of view. I was like, who, what is this? And so seeing his name attached to Man of Steel, I got very excited about it. And so seeing, not seeing, but hearing what he did by not going back to the John Williams well and by establishing something new and different excites me. And I will say this, just as it's not really a spoiler, but you hear hints of that in BVS, <laughs> just because he's the composer and it lends itself to what's happening in the film. And so I'll, I'll be interested to hear your thoughts as you, uh, when you watch it to see kind of how, how you think it fits into the overall story. But yeah, I think the music plays such a prominent role, not just from the emotional weight, but also from the action sequences. These big, giant, explosive scenes, he, he does your standard big orchestra pieces that fit with the moment. But I love that he's able to scale it back with that piano of those six to eight notes. Uh, it's just, ugh, I love it. I could listen to that, that simple piano forever. It's worth noting that I mean, Zimmer with the main theme for Superman here is playing with the same notes that William does in his. In Williams, you have so, so, do, so, so, do, so, do, so, so, do, so, so, me, re, re. That's it. It's very simple chord notes. And that's what Zimmer is playing with in this one. He just approaches it differently. He gives it some, some conflict, some dissonance. And by the end, when he's Superman, that's when he resolves it. As for the action music, you're, you're right. It, it's huge. It's grand. It's very Zimmer-esque in a good way. You know, I was worried going into this film about Zimmer's music in particular because I didn't want a Batman clone or an Inception clone. I wanted something different. I, I, I wanted Williams, honestly. I, I wanted it to, to be reminiscent of that. And what I got pleased me so much because it was different than what Zimmer does. And that's what I like about Zimmer is he's always trying something new. He's always pushing the envelope of what you can do with film music. And here, I just think he hit the nail on the head. Worth noting, go to YouTube at some point and search Man of Steel Percussion, because what he did for this film was he assembled 12 all-star world-class percussionists. And there's video of the 12 of them sitting in this circle in a room in a recording studio recording this this drum track together and it is fascinating to watch and it is so cool and it gets this huge big sound that is so different one last thing about the music i love that zimmer is able to capture both the largeness of superman and of zod and of this clash of titans but he's also able to capture the intimacy of clark kent with his family in kansas and that it's just amazing i i love williams but for me this score is Superman, and that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> well, I will not add to that because that's perfect. Let's sort of wind down a little bit into our relevance section. So what is one of your takeaways from this movie, Patrick? Well, as, as someone who attached himself to the main themes of a father and son's relationship, I gravitated towards this idea of when I look at my now four-year-old, and I think about the themes of Man of Steel. I think about what he could become. He's, again, as far as I know, not an alien. I'm pretty sure he's not. 99.9%. .9%. But <laughs> I think <laughs> he may act like one sometimes. But no, I look at him and I think 
you have the capacity for greatness because you are not a mistake, because you were made purposefully. And my faith really kind of defines my life. And so when I when I think about Man of Steel, of course, there's a lot of references to the Messiah and things like that. And, and you could spend a whole podcast just talking about those. But I think from a father-son point of view, when I think about the timing theme and I think about how Jonathan looked at Clark and he said, not yet, not yet, not yet. I think about the moments that my son wants to do so many things and he's just not big enough. And I say, you're not, you're not big enough yet. You can't do that just yet. And how ambitious he is. And I think about that in light of how, as he gets older, his ambitions are going to get even bigger and bigger and bigger. And then there's going to become that moment. And maybe I'll be around to see it. Maybe I won't where he will be able to fulfill whatever his purpose is. And it may be something that scares me to death. (laughs) It may mean him leaving and me never seeing him again. (laughs) And it may be him sacrificing himself physically or emotionally that I can't do anything about. And so I asked myself in those moments, am I going to be able to trust that he's making the right decisions because of how he's learned to wait? And it's an amazing wonderful, scary thought to think at some point my son's going to begin to make those decisions on his own, either because of my influence or despite my influence. And I both look forward to and am incredibly cautious of the man that he's going to become because I know that he's capable of great things because of the fact that he just exists. And like Jonathan, I think he could do things that could change the world for better or for worse. (laughs) And I've got to just trust that he's going to make the right decision. So I I resonate with that, that father-son relationship and also that idea of timing and saying when it's the proper time, he's going to do something amazing. And am I going to be ready to either have to let him go if I need to? Uh, Am I going to be able to celebrate with him even if I don't know exactly what is going on? I love that. I love that I can connect with that part of Man of Steel and not just because I'm a fan of, of the character of Superman, but because I'm now a father and I can, I can get that. So that, that's kind of the big takeaway for me. I can't truly identify because I am, well, I'm not a father, but uh, <laughs> I definitely see where you're coming from. And you touched on a couple of my things. So first, I, I just want to point out a few of the Superman as a messianic figure references at the beginning of the film, Jor-El says he will be a god to them. Jonathan says, you have another father who gave you another name. He sent you here for a reason, just like God did with Christ. You have uh, the idea that he was sent by his father to be a sort of savior for mankind. And then you have moments when he sacrifices himself, when he, he bursts into the terraformer knowing that he's weaker around it, but he he's going to do his darndest, whether it kills him or not, to save earth from this device that's going to kill them all or even killing zod in that way he sacrifices his innocence he he sacrifices the part of him that has never killed anybody and he does it because he's protecting the people of earth and just a couple more there's the scene where he asks his father why god gave him these powers and then there's another scene where he he goes to the local priest for advice on what to do in this impossible situation he's being put in. So there's lots of Christ references in this film. And from the beginning, Superman has always been a Christ-like figure from its inception that that's just 
who he is. Now, again, I want to quote Jor-El. He says, there is potential in every person to be a force for good. He sends Kal-El slash Clark to be a model of that strength for good and for the people of Earth. He says, give the people of Earth an ideal to strive for. And Jonathan, as his second father, believes in Clark's ability to do good as well. So you have this potential in everybody to to be a force for good. And along with that, you have the power of choice. Clark had the choice to be this force for good or not. The Kryptonians, we learn, were bred for individual purposes. They had no choice. And what happens when you have no choice? You become Zod. You become so focused on your one thing that you tune out everything else. And it, it corrupted him. It's not necessarily his fault. He was created for a purpose. And when you don't have that purpose, what do you do? I assume you go crazy like he did. Clark had the power to choose who he wanted to be. Right. And because of that, he chose to be good. He chose to be an agent of good. Yes, he had positive influences in his life. He had Jonathan and Martha who raised him and taught him the power of good and the the, the values of hard work. Then he bumps into the, the projection of Jor-El in the ship. And he tells him that I sent you there to to protect the people of Earth and to give them an ideal to strive for. But he didn't have to do that if he didn't want to. He had the choice, but it's because he had that choice that he makes the right one, which is to become Superman and to be a savior for the people of Earth. Very cool stuff. I actually didn't think about that until you just said it. The power of choice is something that both Clark and Zod had. They had the power to choose at some point. Zod could have shut his laser beams off. He could have said, you're right, we could make this world better. And he still chose not to. At the end of the day, he could have made that choice and he didn't. So that's really interesting. The last thing I had was the idea of there being consequences to our actions, which is a pretty common theme. But you have Clark saving the bus nearly leads to his discovery. You have Jor-El sending his son leading to his premature death at the hands of Zod being stabbed in the gut. You have Zod corrupting his purpose, which leads to his death. You have Clark seeking answers, which originally brought Zod to Earth. Remember, he activated something on the ship, a distress signal that brought Zod to Earth in the first place. And then probably what used to be my biggest problem with the film, and it didn't bother me so much today, and that's the destruction at the hands of both Zod and Superman at the end of the film. You've got, like I said earlier, this clash of titans. At their hands, there is so much death and destruction in Metropolis. There are buildings crumbling all over the place, and there have got to be thousands of people who died in that scene. But what used to bother me about it was Superman shouldn't be doing something like that. Superman should be more careful in the arena of this battle, I suppose. But watching it today, the movie doesn't ignore that people are dying or ignore that that Superman is doing something contrary to what we typically assume of him. There are scenes in that battle when we are focused on the people of the city, whether it's Perry saving, I forget her name, but saving one of his fellow workers from the rubble, or whether it's just onlookers looking as they watch their supposed savior toppling buildings around them. It's not ignored at all. And Superman, I think, understands that. And I know that's dealt with partially in Batman v Superman, the the sort of fallout of this battle and uh, public opinion of him due to the destruction at his hands. And so because of all of this destruction at Superman's hands, there's consequences. It's 
again, another reason why Zod has to die is because all of the destruction that does happen in this scene, both at Zod's hand, at Superman's hand, but in a way Superman's hand is forced because of who Zod is and what he's trying to accomplish. And so, like I said, it's not ignored in this film like I initially accused it of. It's probably still a little bit gratuitous, to be honest. But for me, I think that it just shows that there are consequences of our actions. Yes, Superman eventually saves the day, but it's sort of a question of at what cost. And from what I understand, that's what's explored, at least initially in Batman v Superman. <laughs> this is what caused my opinion of the movie to sort of ebb and flow. And fortunately for me, it's kind of gone up again. Not kind of, it has gone up. It's very significantly. But I, I look at that and I go, the length of it still bothers me. And I think it's, some of it has to do with the fact that there's the bigger fight scene beforehand, I guess, in Smallville. If you cut that out or shorten it, it didn't feel as long to me, that final sequence with Zod. But I look at that and um, I think about the moral compass of humanity, not just within the world of cinema, but also within us as an audience. Most people didn't like the massive amounts of collateral damage that took place. But as you mentioned, this is what would happen with two titans fight each other without any kind of control. We're so used to seeing films where there are, quote, epic battles and buildings destroyed. You know, New York has gotten toppled how many times by, from various films. And I think what bothers people is the reality of the fact that if this existed, this is what would happen. And maybe it was heavy handed, but it was also the truth that if you had two aliens with unlimited power fighting each other, I mean, you could blame it on Superman for saying, why didn't he take Zod to space? And why didn't he take him someplace like, you know, Indian, the Indian Ocean where, you know, there weren't people. Well, Superman is just now becoming Superman. He's not, it's not like he's had five years of Superman experience to get used to this. I mean, this is a immediate threat. And he's a guy who said, I'm trying to do whatever I can. I'm trying to catch this guy. I'm trying to eliminate him or at least stop him. And I can't control where he goes or what he does. And so this is probably the closest to a grounded superhero film featuring a man who's not, you know, a grounded character. And that's why it really has bothered me less and less as the more I watch it is because I think this is what the reality of this kind of destruction is. I mean, it's not, it's not pretty and it shouldn't be pretty. And the story that Snyder and company are trying to tell sort of points to that. And yes, you're right. It does bleed into BVS to an extent. So, I mean, that's not really a spoiler, but I like that Snyder doesn't ignore the consequences, <laughs> not just the collateral damage, but how it affects these guys that caused it. So kudos to him for being a risk taker in that regard. Right. And like I said, it's about consequences to our actions and the consequence of Superman having this all out war with Zod in the middle of a populated city and causing all this destruction is that people don't like him all that much when it comes around to Batman v Superman. And so even that is tackled. And though that has bothered me in the past, like you said, it bothers me less now than it did at one point. And I like this film quite a bit. Uh, any final thoughts from you, Patrick? Um, Superman's still my favorite superhero, although Lego Batman is making a case for the other guy. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I've got to say, I rewatched Lego Batman a couple days ago and it holds up just as much as it did in the cinema. Oh gosh, I'm excited. I've got it. Uh, I bought it, but I'm waiting to watch it again. Um, there's a dollar 
summer movie thing for kids and it's one of the ones late in the summer and I'm waiting to see that again with my son. So <laughs> as much as I want to watch it right now, <laughs> I want to wait until the, the, the theater experience to watch it again. Yeah. I mean, Lego Batman aside, when it comes to Man of Steel, as I said, I was looking for a, a movie that made me care about Superman. It made me interested in him as a character. And this movie accomplished that for me. I am fully invested in Henry Cavill, Snyder, Superman, as presented in Man of Steel. I am interested to see what my thoughts on Batman v Superman will be. I would like to assume that because my opinion of Man of Steel is generally higher than most, that I will maybe like Batman v Superman more than most. I don't know. I'm hopeful. I've got the Ultimate Edition, which is what I will be watching instead of the theatrical cut, because I hear that is better. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter to to see how that turns out after I watch, hopefully in the next few days. So we will see. I'm excited to hear your thoughts. Well, I think that wraps us up. That is the end of the official 47th episode of Cinescope. Thank you so much, Patrick, for being back and for talking about this movie that I've been waiting to talk about for so long. I'm glad I could oblige, Chad. Thanks for having me. Contact for the show, facebook.com slash Cinescope podcast or at Cinescope pod on Twitter. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. And don't forget about the giveaway that we're still running all the way through episode 52 for the one-year anniversary of the show. If you leave a review on iTunes or if you share and tag us on social media, then you will be entered into the contest to win one or two movies that we have talked about on the show in any format you choose. So don't forget about that. Email feedback and ideas to the Cinescope Podcast at gmail.com. And you can also use that email if you're interested in co-hosting. If you have a movie that you love, think you could talk about it for 45 minutes to an hour or so, let me know because I would love to have you on the show. Now, Patrick, where can people find you and your work online? I am at Chewless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I also have a website, thisispatch.com, that houses some of my writing, some of my photography, and just general information about me. So if you want to get to know me, you can find out some stuff about me there. You can also check out more of my opinions on movies, particularly my emotional opinions, at our website, feelinfilm.com. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter, at feelinfilm, F-E-E-L-I-N-F-I-L-M. Always got some good stuff going on there. And again, I can't recommend Feel and Film highly enough because it is similar in outlook to Cinescope, yet they approach newer films than we tend to here on Cinescope. So if you're looking for similar opinions, similar people who love movies and just want to talk about how much they enjoy them, then head over to Feel and Film to listen to Aaron and Patrick here talk about the movies that they enjoy. Now, the best place to find me is on Twitter at Chadadada, that is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A, and on Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And just a couple of quick plugs. Today, actually, two different episodes from other podcasts dropped that I was a part of in some way. So on the Underrated podcast with James Hamrick and Gabriel Green. We just recently talked about John Carter, which funny enough is the basis for Superman. You have this guy who wakes up in a strange planet with superpowers. Pretty great stuff. I love John Carter. If you want to listen to my thoughts on that, head over to underratedpodcast.com and find that. And then Sideshow Sound Radio. I talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked about the newest Pirates of the Caribbean movie with Aaron White. They just released today a score guide over the Pirates of the Caribbean Curse of the Black Pearl.
Pearl soundtrack composed by Klaus Badelt and Hans Zimmer. And I contributed some clips to that. So if you want to hear that, it's a very comprehensive walkthrough of the score for the film. And it's very fun to listen to. I listened earlier and had a great time with it. So go check those out if you want to hear more of me elsewhere today. Anyways, all that being said, show notes, contact information can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that is all for this week. Once again, thank you so much, Patrick. It's always great having you on the show. Good to be here, Chad. Thanks for having me. And thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 47. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 48. Have fun and celebrate movies. Movies.